Well, what's a man doing at a woman's conference? <laughs> uh, I have the privilege, the honor of clearing the stones from the path that I believe God will call many of you, all of you, in one fashion or another, to uh, walk with him. I think over the course of church history, uh, God has called women and gifted women to minister the gospel in his name. And sadly, obstacles have been placed in your path. I was praying about this earlier this week and actually had a picture in my head of Jesus calling women to follow him, to be his disciples. And there were jagged rocks in the path and many of the women who had chosen to follow the call of Jesus were sitting on the side of the path tending their wounds. I believe God wants to bring an end to that. I believe the Lord wants to heal your wounds. I believe the Lord wants to set you free to serve him as he has called you. And as I say, I believe it is my honor and privilege to answer God's call on my life, which is to help remove some of those sharp stones from the path. So some of you may be aware that we're talking tonight about heroic women in the Bible, and uh, others of you who weren't aware of that previously now are. (laughs) And so the first woman that we're going to talk about is one of my favorite biblical heroes, and uh, her name is Phoebe. And to talk about her accurately, though, I found that I needed to go not just to our English translations of the Bible, uh, which are good in many cases, not in this case. (laughs) I found like I had to go to the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament authors, uh, Paul in particular, as he writes and talks about this heroic woman named Phoebe. And this is what I found. Uh, I'm mixing the English and the Greek here, and hopefully you will soon understand why. Paul writes to the church in Rome, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a diakonos of the church in Sancria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people, and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the prostatus of many people, including me. That's found in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Paul uses two Greek words here to describe Phoebe's role in the church. I think an important question for us to ask and answer is what did these words mean to the authors of the New Testament? What did these words mean to the Apostle Paul specifically? He uses, he uses these words frequently 
in his letters to various churches and individuals. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 6 and 7 is one example. The Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister, diakonos, according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. You can find that in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 6 and 7. Paul uses the term diakonos to refer to himself as a minister of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace that was given to him. Earlier in the chapter, you can check for yourself if you like, it talks about the ministry of the apostles. And Paul links this language to his ministry as a minister and an apostle. We find this word used again by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. A deacon, diakonos, must be faithful to his wife and must manage, the Greek term here is proistomenoi, his children and his household well. Notice Paul never gives instructions to husbands to manage their wives. You won't find that language in the Bible, though I have read it in many commentaries. In these two examples, Paul demonstrates that the word diakonos can be used to describe a minister of the gospel or a deacon. Paul used the term to describe his own apostolic ministry, as I mentioned, and uh, to refer to other leaders in the early church. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 12, Paul also uses the verb proistomenoi, it's one of my favorite Greek verbs, to refer to the activity of managing one's children and household well. Strong's Concordance provides the following information about one of my favorite Greek verbs. And the I form is, is read proistemi. In short, it simply means I rule. Actually, I've seen lots of t-shirts that say that. <laughs> you could actually just say proistomeni. Nobody would know what you're talking about. Except me, because it's my favorite Greek verb. <laughs> the definition, the longer definition, in Strong's Concordance is, I preside, I rule over, I give attention to, I direct, maintain, or practice diligently. Other uses of this verb are found in the following verses. 1 Timothy 5.17 The elders who rule well. Proistemi. Romans 12.8 He who leads according to the gifts given by God do so with diligence. It's a form of proistemi. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 uh, Paul refers to those who have charge over you in the Lord shepherds. And uh, the verb that's used again is a form of proistemi or proistemenoi. It is the noun form of this word prostatis that is used to describe Phoebe in Romans 16.12 as Strong's Concordance indicates prostatis which is used of a woman who has an impressive 
Christian reputation. And so it can be understood that Phoebe was a minister of the gospel and a leader in the church at Sancrea. I was able to find one English translation of the Bible, and may God bless these translators, that renders the Greek words used by Paul in the sense of minister and leader. And uh, that English translation is Young's literal translation of the Bible. And it reads as follows. And I commend you, I commend to you, and I commend you to Phoebe, our sister, being a ministrant of the assembly that is in Sancria, that ye may receive her in the Lord as doth become saints, and may assist her in whatever manner, whatever matter she may have need of you, for she also became a leader of many and of myself. Old English. I'm not even sure when that translation was written, but I'm very thankful for it. Why do we seldom, if ever, hear of this woman who was a minister, deacon, or a leader in the church? Simple answer, translation trouble. English translations of diakonos in relation to Phoebe. They're fairly consistent. (laughs) The word is rendered servant when it's used of Phoebe. Although when it's used of Paul and Timothy, uh, specifically, it's typically rendered a minister and sometimes it's rendered deacon. English Bible translations of prostatus in relation to Phoebe, also fairly consistent. Uh, she's described as helpful, a helper, a succorer, which again is Old English. She has assisted or she's described as a kind friend. That one really got me. Uh, I, I must say, and I don't I want to have the right attitude about this, but I do struggle being a human being myself who's tempted by a sinful nature like everybody else. That's brutal. <laughs> a kind friend. Maybe she was, but that's not what the word means. It just doesn't mean that. Sorry? I'll try to, yes. Thank you for asking me to do that. Unfortunately, none of these translations acknowledge the fact that the words diakonos and prostatus can indicate that Phoebe, a woman, was a leader in the early church as well as a minister of the gospel. A noticeable shift in the translation of Romans 16 verses 1 to 2 began in the 4th century AD. You wouldn't believe the dusty books I had to find and read to discover this. Uh, They included uh, microfiche, microfilm copies of of, uh, notes written in Latin on animal skins. So this information is not incredibly available. But uh, the shift in translation began with St. Jerome's Latin Vulgate. 
And instead of keeping the Greek understanding of prostatis, literally to stand before or to stand at the head of, Jerome chose a Latin word that literally means to stand near or at one side. And since this time in church history, the fourth century, 300 years after Jesus, Phoebe has been referred to not as a leader, but rather as a helper, assistant, or friend. Why did Jerome do this? Well, reading Jerome's work and the work of um, some of his colleagues from the 4th century who were bishops in the church, it became clear that Jerome made sense of the Bible through the lenses of a non-biblical human philosophy called Neoplatonism. Just out of curiosity, has anybody here ever heard of or studied Neoplatonism? One. Two-ish. Three. Thank you, Helga. (laughs) We're a team. (laughs) Deborah, way to go, Deborah. Okay. And so this information is not widely available, but may it become so in Jesus' name. Jerome made sense of the Bible through a philosophy that was dualistic, ascetic, hierarchical, and sexist. You didn't see this slide. (laughs) What does that even mean? Uh, A philosophy that's dualistic talks about things as if there are things come in twos. There's the body and the spirit. There's men, there's women. There's the mind, there's the emotions. And a dualistic philosophy splits those. Okay, and, and treats them almost as if they're in opposition to one another. Okay, so that's what dualism means. Ascetic. Ascetic means that your emotions and your body are frankly evil. Okay? They, if they're not evil, they're almost evil. And you should avoid them. So St. Jerome believed and taught a dualistic form of ascetic philosophy. He stayed in the desert for a number of years hoping to rid himself of his emotions, especially uh, his passions and appetites. And when he was in the desert for four years or so attempting to rid himself of his emotions, he failed. He was not able to do that. In fact, he said the more he tried to rid himself of these aspects of what it meant to be a human being, the more tormented he was by his feelings. Uh, Neoplatonism is dualistic, ascetic, and hierarchical. What does that mean? That one of the things that you divide the universe into needs to rule over the other thing. So the mind, Jerome believed and taught, needs to rule the body. The spirit needs to rule the flesh. Men, he believed and taught, need to rule over women. And it is through the lenses of this philosophy 
that he made sense of and translated the Bible that became the authoritative version of the scriptures for more than 1,200 years. Powerful impact on Christian tradition. Powerful impact on our understanding of God's word. And I think it's time we take another look at what happened to the Bible in the fourth century. I discussed this at length in uh, a book that I wrote uh, called A God I'd Like to Meet, Separating the Love of God from Harmful Traditional Beliefs. I actually felt prompted to put that book uh, and two others that address these topics out by the grand prize. And so uh, I'm not actually selling anything today, but if you want to look at those, uh, you're most welcome to flip through them. Um, they're summarized nicely on the back. They're on Amazon. They're on Kindle. Um, I tried to make them as, as accessible as possible. So please feel free to have a look at that. If you have a philosophy that's dualistic, ascetic, and hierarchical, it becomes sexist. Okay? If you compare men to the mind, which St. Jerome did, and a colleague of his, St. Augustine, did, and you compare men to the spirit, which they also did, and you compare women to the emotions and the body, and you think the mind needs to rule over the emotions and the body, and you think men need to rule over women, that's a fairly textbook definition of what we call sexism today. Okay? And I truly believe that is one of the biggest sharp stones in the path of women called by God to serve Him according to the gifts He gives. Other influential theologians who made sense of the Bible through the lenses of Neoplatonism include Origen, St. Augustine, and John Calvin. Uh, who's heard these names? Names of these theologians? Okay. If you've heard their names, you've probably been influenced to some extent by their understanding of God's Word. Okay? So I encourage you to reflect on that. Be open to what the Spirit might say. I'm not saying everything these men happened to write about God was incorrect. I'm just aware that there's a Neoplatonic element that specifically impacts how we understand what the Bible says about women. But doesn't this teaching, what I'm saying today about Phoebe, that a woman can be a leader in the church, contradict what the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 2.12? Who here is familiar with 1 Timothy 2.12? And it's, okay, it's, I know it's up there, but who's heard it before I put it up on the, yeah, I bet. I've heard it also. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Helga will be speaking later. <laughs> she will not remain quiet. I know that sounds a little irreverent, but anyway. I do respect God and God's word. But uh, I feel called to challenge human traditions. And uh, a Jewish rabbi of the first century... Known, as a, known to be a carpenter, was also called to challenge human traditions. So I feel like I'm in good company.
His name is Jesus. So doesn't 1 Timothy 2.12 prohibit women exercising authority, especially over men? On the contrary, the English translation of this verse, written by the Apostle Paul, originally in Greek, is also based on St. Jerome's Latin Vulgate. Out of curiosity, how many people knew that? Deborah, (laughs) I love you. (laughs) That's wonderful. Okay? To help you understand specifically, uh, Jerome uh, wrote the Vulgate, contributed to it certainly in the 4th century. Another Neoplatonist of the 16th century named Erasmus. Who's heard of Erasmus? Okay, wonderful. He also wrote an updated version of the Bible in Greek and Latin. Uh, And do you know whose Latin version he used as a reference? St. Jerome, very good. And so he looked at St. Jerome's translation of 1 Timothy 2.12 and translated it into Latin as the word octoritatum, which means literally exercise authority. Before Erasmus' Latin translation in the 16th century, octoritatum, this word had never in the history of Christianity been translated exercise authority you can quote me on that I read the animal skins <laughs> okay the word translated exercise authority in English was originally authentane in Greek Jerome translated this as dominari in Latin which can mean dominate or exercise dominion an excellent book that explores the entire history of translating this verse. Uh, and, and actually uh, a comprehensive look at non-biblical Greek literature over the span of 400 years, 200 years before the New Testament and 200 years after the New Testament, is written by a man named Leland Wilshire. It's called Insight into Two Biblical Passages, and one of the passages is First Timothy chapter 2. It's a fantastic resource. In the Bible that Paul often quotes from, as Paul quotes the what we now call the Old Testament frequently, uh, to him it was simply the Bible or the Holy Scriptures. That's the language that he uses. We find the same word used often tame, in a book that we now uh, refer to as apocryphal, but it's in the 2nd century B.C. Old Testament that we call the Greek Septuagint. Who's heard of the Septuagint? Okay, fantastic. Okay, it's one of the oldest known manuscripts in any language of the Old Testament that is currently available to us today. Um, And this is what it says. Do you remember the ancient inhabitants of your holy land? You scorned them for their unholy ways, for their sorcery and profane rituals their callous killing of children, their cannibal feasts on human flesh and blood. They practiced secret rituals in which parents slaughtered their own defenseless children. And that's found in the Septuagint book, Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 12, verses 3 to 6. The parents in this passage who slaughter their children in profane rituals 
to false gods are referred to as authentas. Historians of the New Testament era also use this word, authentain, to refer to something violent, criminal, or murderous. So it's not just the Septuagint that uses the word in this way. Uh, Historians from the first century, the time when our New Testament was written, also regularly, repeatedly use the word in this sense. Diodorus Siculus, one of my favorite historians, used the word in these terms, a perpetrator of sacrilege, the author of crimes, or the supporter of violent actions. These are all forms of authentine. Flavius Josephus used the word to mean perpetrator of a crime or perpetrators of a slaughter. In the second century AD, a Greek grammarian, teacher of Greek grammar, named Harpokration, defined the word as a person who brings about the murder of someone through the use of others. On 32 occasions when talking about exercising authority in the New Testament, Paul uses the word exousia. He uses the word authentain once and once only and only in 1 Timothy chapter 2. In fact, it's used only once in the New Testament in its entirety, and I believe it's only used once in the Old Testament in the wisdom of Solomon. Although there might be, I think it's also used in um, 3 Maccabees, which you won't find in anyone's Bible, but it's still a piece of, of historical literature, and it has the same violent meaning. Why does the Apostle Paul use a word associated with ritual violence or slaughter in his letter to Timothy? After reviewing uh, the historical documentation uh, in relation to this word, it appears to me that Paul uses this language because he is attempting to address a false teaching in Ephesus, the location of Timothy's church, pardon me, that was symbolized by ritual violence against men. Oftentimes people read 1 Timothy and seem to treat it as if it's talking about how to have a church meeting. And uh, chapter 2 does talk about how to have a church meeting. But it seems, authors often seem to presume that we're talking about this church. This is not the church that Paul was addressing. Uh, In fact, if you do some review of the culture of Ephesus, uh, the province of Lydia, Asia Minor, during the first century, you'll find that their society was not like ours at all. And it's some fascinating reading. In 1 Timothy chapters 1, 4, and 6, Paul is warning Timothy against a false teaching that commanded people to deny the body. Practice celibacy, fast from certain foods, so that they would receive special knowledge. Greek word for that is gnosis from God. Eventually, those who practiced this form of spirituality came to be known as Gnostics. Anybody ever heard of Gnostics? 
Okay, fantastic. Who here is aware that 1 Timothy attempts to address Gnosticism or early forms of Gnosticism in the early church? No? I'm so glad you're all here today. <laughs> it's very exciting. So if you want to look, you'll, you'll find reference to that in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and 6. One of the books, actually, that I, that I brought along focuses only on Paul's warning to Timothy about Gnosticism in the church and how we can understand 1 Timothy 2 in light of that. In and around Ephesus, many groups practiced a form of Gnosticism. Worshippers of the goddess Sibylla, who was known as Artemis by the Greeks and Diana by the Romans, practiced a denial of the body, celibacy, fasting, so that they would receive special revelation from their goddess. A Jewish sect that had been exiled to this area of the world in the second century BC also began to practice a form of this spirituality. They, they became known as the Essenes. A sect called the Nassenes, who uh, also existed, and they mixed the gospel of Jesus Christ with the mythology of Sibylla. If you read 1 Timothy, Paul is warning against uh, those who teach celibacy, fasting, and connect it with mythology. He also says they call themselves teachers of the law and that they go on and on about endless genealogies. Okay? People familiar with those verses at all? Okay, the, the leaders of the Essenes did all of those things and claimed that their genealogy could be traced to the priesthood of Zadok from the Old Testament. Okay? So if we look at Paul's warnings, especially in his language, Old, or New Testament Koine Greek, and you do a thorough study of the his, history of the time, you see that Paul's warnings line up perfectly with what was going on historically in this part of the world. And he saw this as a profound threat to the gospel and to the early church and warns against it. So we've talked a little bit about these groups and their celibacy and fasting. Uh, so I'm just going to skip past the first point. But I want to highlight the priests of Sibylla, as she had a priesthood, the priests of Artemis, which is a Greek name for Sibylla in Ephesus, and the Essenes, who modeled their brand of Judaism after these uh, myths, all practiced ritual violence against men to symbolize the denial of the body. You can find this information in Farnell's Cults of the Greek States, Volume 2, Ferguson, Religions of the Roman Empire, and I review the history in my own work as well. This ritual violence either took the form of circumcision or castration. Jews, of course, practice circumcision. Paul writes about that extensively. Essenes, however, saw circumcision as symbolic of their renunciation of the body and its passions. So like other Jews, they still practice circumcision, but it had a slightly different meaning for them a similar meaning to that which was associated with the worship of Sibylla, 
Her priests denied the body and its passions, but went further than circumcision, went as far as to practice castration. One group of Essenes, called the Sicarii, I'm giving you all these names just in case there's some real bookworms and you want to Google this for yourself and, and do some studying on it. But they were called the Sicarii. They would even circumcise non-Jewish men against their will. And the men who resisted were quote-unquote slaughtered. And that comes from a third century historian uh, and Christian now referred to as St. Hippolytus. So people see the connection. There's a Gnostic form of spirituality symbolized by ritual violence against men. Uh, Some of the men didn't volunteer for that. They were volunteered for that. Some of the men, understandably, as a man, resisted this uh, symbolic gesture, and they were killed. The Romans, by the way, saw that this was going on and tried to pass a law against it. It specifically forbids the priests of Sibylla from castrating themselves and it forbids Jewish sects from practicing forced circumcision on non-Jewish men. And that law was passed in the first century. Okay? So we know this was an issue. There's a lot of history that talks about it. So if we understand Paul's language and context correctly, is he actually saying that women cannot teach or lead in the Christian church? Simple answer. Absolutely not. He's evidently warning Timothy about a false teaching that was symbolized by ritual violence against men. A translation of 1 Timothy 2.12 that takes Paul's original language and context into consideration might read, I do not permit a woman to teach or to support violent actions against a man. Uh, Any woman teaching Sibylla mythology in Ephesus, which is very likely, would be teaching a philosophy or a mythology that was truly symbolized by ritual violence against men. Women who worship Sibylla also believed that if they made offerings to her, they would be saved in childbirth. Anybody ever read that verse in 1 Timothy 2.15 that talks about women being saved in childbearing? Anybody here seen that? Has anybody ever wondered what the heck that's talking about? Besides me? Okay. Well, Jerome said, well, you can imagine what Jerome said after what I've shared about his philosophy, that men and women should be celibate, of course. He also said they should fast from certain foods, which sounds suspiciously like the teaching Paul's warning people against. I had to point that out, okay? But the church had embraced this teaching by the fourth century as gospel. And Jerome said, women should be celibate. But if they're not, they will be saved by having children and raising them in a godly manner. So apparently salvation comes to some of us 
through having children and then avoiding the uh, making sure your children never have any difficulties <laughs> as they progress to adulthood uh, and then you'll be saved I really don't think that's what Paul is saying I think he's addressing people who believed in this false teaching connected with Sibylla mythology and they believed this because they they thought it would save them in childbirth but instead Paul says be saved through faith holiness and propriety is it just women that are supposed to be saved through faith in Christ that shows itself in holiness and propriety who here thinks that men should also have faith in Christ <laughs> and that should be shown through holiness and propriety whatever however you want to translate that proper conduct okay that's what I think we're talking about can women be ministers of the gospel if that is your call can women be leaders in the church like Phoebe if that is your gift absolutely each of us should serve the Lord according to the gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit of God uh, may God bless you with that uh, speak to you through that and we're going to have a little uh, stretch break bathroom break people can fill out things for the grand prize 10 minutes Helga says um, which comes to an end at about 20 after yeah? and uh, uh, feel free to chat with us during the break if you like as well okay thanks <laughs>